Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day, and you say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive then take out, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to Book Club with Michael Smirkanish. Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. As a Sirius XM and CNN host, I'm known for speaking, but frankly, I read for a living. I need to know what to say, and so I consume over two dozen newspapers and websites daily. I read opposing views and studies and court cases and orders and op-eds just so I can discuss current events on radio and television. But my favorite reading? Books. Old school. And my favorite interviews? are with book authors. Book Club with Michael Smirconish is now in session. Gang, Michael Sandel is academic royalty. He teaches political philosophy at Harvard. He's written international bestsellers. His Harvard course called Justice was the university's first to be made available for free online and television. It's been viewed by literally tens of millions of individuals. His brand new book is The Tyranny of Merit, What's Become of the Common Good. This is Dr. Michael Sandel. Dr. Sandel, thanks so much for being here. Great to be with you, Michael. In the 1980s, I found myself in my public high school principal's office for some indiscretion. Frankly, I don't remember the indiscretion. I only remember the speech that I got. And my my principal was a a political conservative, no-nonsense kind of a guy. Out of nowhere, he launched into a tirade, and he said to me, just listen to the commercials these days. McDonald's is on the air saying, 
you deserve a break today. Now, what kind of a self-centered, egotistical attitude are they promoting? I had no idea what the hell he was talking about, but I never <laughs> forgot it. And when I read your book, I thought, holy smokes, you, you see a, a, a silver lining in that. What is it? Getting what we deserve, Michael, that's been the watchword of our politics and political discourse over the last three or four decades. And on the face of it, it's a good thing. It's, it's an inspiring thing. You too can make it. Work hard. Work will be rewarded. You can make it if you try. We hear that all the time from politicians. And yet, there's a dark side to that that's beginning to catch up with us. And the dark side is, if, it's, if we tell ourselves that if you work hard, you can rise and you can make it, what about those who don't? What about those who have been left behind? And it's a good part of our population during the last four decades of globalization. Um, and what I'm worried about and what the book is about is the tendency of those who land on top to believe they deserve their success. They've made it on their own. And to look down on those less fortunate, less credentialed than themselves. And this dynamic, I think, has opened the way for Trump, who appeals to the resentments that result. But must you necessarily have both? Can I have a recognition that I'm where I am because of my own hard work, but not look down on someone who doesn't share those achievements? I, I, for example, I am impressed with the fact that you are a graduate of Brandeis, that you received your doctorate from Oxford. I'm blown away by the fact that you're a Rhodes Scholar. Should I not be impressed with those credentials? Well, m maybe you can be impressed, Michael, but my point is that I shouldn't be too impressed. My worry is that those who, that the successful are inhaling too deeply of their success. And this leads the successful to forget the luck and good fortune that helped them on their way, it leads them to forget the sense of indebtedness to the wider community. And it makes, I think, the successful less alive to the need to, to uh, worry about those who haven't flourished, um, very possibly, and in most cases, through no doing of their own. So this, it's the meritocratic hubris that, that the credentials, that the professional classes, professional elites have come to imbibe, Michael, that I think has, has given a great many working people who don't have a four-year university degree, most Americans don't, the sense that the work they do isn't valued the way it once was. And Trump taps in to this resentment, to this grievance. And I, I think that Democrats and, and liberals and progressives need to pay attention to this this galling sense of humiliation that these harsh attitudes towards success have generated. In other words, you think that too often it follows among those who are high achievers, who have accumulated wealth, that because they think they got there through hard work, well, the other guy, he just must not be working hard enough. And that's not true because it, it doesn't take into account the starting line, the zip code, uh, the background, the legacy, et cetera, et cetera. All of that and the fact that we assume we very easily assume that the money people make is the measure of their contribution to the common good. 
But this is a mistake. And we're beginning to see what a mistake it is during the pandemic. When those of us who had the luxury of working at home remotely, holding meetings on Zoom, begin to realize how deeply dependent we are on workers we often overlook, not only in the hospitals, but I'm thinking about delivery workers, grocery store clerks, warehouse workers, home health care providers. I think we need to reconfigure our economy as we emerge from the pandemic, figuring out how better to reward but also recognize and value the contributions made to the economy by people who may lack credentials uh, of, of a fancy prestigious kind, but who nonetheless make important contributions to our society through the work they do, the families they raise, and the communities they serve. Are the problems that you describe with a meritocracy limited to the United States, or is this a global issue as you see it? Of course, what you say brings to my mind Brexit. Exactly. I do think it's a problem that reaches beyond the United States. One of the deepest divides, and this is a clue to the role of meritocracy in this, Michael, one of the deepest divides in our politics today is the, the divide, and you can see it in voting behavior, between people who do and don't have a four-year college degree. Think about the past. The Democratic Party traditionally was the party of working people against the powerful business interests and the privileged. And so people without a college education were the backbone of the Democratic Party, and people who had college educations tended to vote Republican. That's flipped now, and you see it in the 2016 election, um, Hillary Clinton did very well among those with uh, four-year college degrees. Donald Trump did very well, especially among white working people who didn't have four-year college degrees. You remember his famous line after one primary victory, I love the poorly educated. He was on to this. The same pattern we, see, we saw with Brexit in Britain and in the support for authoritarian populist figures, hyper-nationalist figures in, in many European countries, Marine Le Pen in France, for example. So this is a shift, and it's a shift related to the growing inequality of the uh, decades of globalization, but also these changing attitudes towards success and failure, Michael. I noted uh, how precisely you stated it, which no one else has has picked up on thus far when you said uh, two years at Fordham before transferring to the University of Pennsylvania, where he took undergraduate classes at the Wharton School of Finance. That distinction is very important and not lost on me. Dr. Sandel, it sounds rather counterintuitive to say that there's a problem with meritocracy in an era where we've dismantled barriers based on race and religion, ethnicity, etc. Square the two. Well, the project of dismantling barriers and prejudice, prejudices that hold people back, that's very important. That is a crucial political project. and, And morally, it's important. It's necessary to a fair society. However, we shouldn't assume that even if we could remove all the barriers to upward mobility, that we would then have a just society. 
because even then, those on top would say, perhaps even more so if chances were more equal than they are today, people on top would have even more meritocratic hubris. And those who didn't rise would no longer be able to say, the system is rigged against me. It's not my fault. The sense of humiliation uh, would, would be even deeper. And my worry, the reason I'm emphasizing, you're right, it's a counterintuitive uh, uh, analysis of what meritocracy has done to unravel the social bonds of our society. But the reason it matters, Michael, is just look at our politics today. I worry that the Democratic Party and liberals and progressives, with, with whom I identify, are so uh, preoccupied with, with every new outrage about Donald Trump uh, that we are being distracted from asking the question, how can we renew the dignity of work? How can we speak to working people who feel disaffected, disempowered by policies that we supported when we deregulated finance, when we embraced a market-driven version of globalization, I think that's what we have to, to question. We, we have to uh, avoid the indulgence of wallowing in every new piece of evidence about how unfit Donald Trump is for his office. Of course, he is woefully unfit, morally unfit, and in every other way. But we have to ask if he's as unfit as we know he is, why is this even a close election? And I think to, to answer that question, we have to shift our focus from meritocracy, from credentialism, from elites looking down. And we have to ask, how can we reconfigure the economy to affirm the dignity of work, to make life better for people who may not have fancy credentials, but who are crucially important to our society? I know that some hearing this conversation will say this all sounds like a, a plea for socialism. Respond, respond to those callers so that I don't have to when you're gone. It's not a plea for socialism. It's a plea for, uh, it's a plea for taking work seriously. It's a plea for re- renewing the dignity of work. It's also a plea for trying to reverse the tendency in recent decades for those who are affluent and those who are of modest means, to live separate lives. We live and work and shop and play in different places. And more and more these days, we send our kids to different schools. There are very few class-mixing institutions and public spaces in our society. And this is damaging to democracy. So what I'm in favor of, and I say this at the end of the book, it's the alternative to uh, uh, removing barriers going beyond that is not an equality of results, if that's what you mean by socialism, where everyone must have the same income. Democracy doesn't require a perfect equality, but it does require that people from different walks of life, different social backgrounds, encounter one another, bump up against one another in the course of our everyday lives, because this is how we learn to negotiate our differences, and this is how we come to care for the common good, to believe that we really are all in this together. And so my worry is that a, a purely meritocratic approach to dealing with inequality through individual mobility 
is corrosive of the common good, this sense that we are all in it together. That's what I'm for. That's the animating vision of the alternative that I hope that liberals and progressives and Democrats can articulate in order to speak to the sense of exclusion and even humiliation of a great many working people. Dr. Sandell, thank you for being so gracious with your time. One final request, if I might. If the book is handy, would you turn to page 226? Because on page 226, I I highlighted what I thought within the whole manuscript was the best encapsulation of what you were saying. Maybe you'll disagree. Maybe maybe you think this was not the the key paragraph. But it's it's under the heading democracy and humility. And it begins with the words we do not have. If you would read that paragraph, I'd be thrilled. Of course, we do not have much equality of condition today. Public spaces that gather people together across class, race, ethnicity, and faith are few and far between. Four decades of market-driven globalization has brought inequalities of income and wealth so pronounced that they lead us into separate ways of life. Those who are affluent and those who are of modest means rarely encounter one another in the course of the day. We live and work and shop and play in different places. Our children go to different schools. And when the meritocratic sorting machine has done its work, those on top find it hard to resist the thought that they deserve their success and that those at the bottom deserve their place as well. This feeds a politics so poisonous and a partisanship so intense that many now regard marriage across party lines as more troubling than marrying outside the faith. It is little wonder we have lost the ability to reason together about large public questions or even to listen to one another. I thought the book was terrific. Uh, Daniel Markovitz was a prior guest of mine from Yale, and so I've, I've been paying attention to the subject. And between the two of you, I think it's I think it's important reading and discussion for the whole country. So I thank you so, so much for writing it and your willingness to come here and discuss it. My pleasure, Michael. Thank you so much. That's Dr. Michael Sandell. He is the author of The Tyranny of Merit, What's Become of the Common Good. I would like to think that you can can have one without the other. If I just pick up on that last paragraph when he said, and when the meritocratic sorting machine has done its work, Those on top find it hard to resist the thought that they deserve their success. Now, I'm going to stop the sentence there. Does that does that sound like you? Sounds a little like me. But the second half of that sentence is not something that I I accept as part of my thought process and find it hard to resist the thought that they deserve their success and those on the bottom deserve their place as well. This feeds a politics so poisonous and a partisanship so intense that many now regard marriage across party lines. You get the rest of it. I, I hope that you will um, you'll be up for a conversation about some of what you've just heard. TC, you can speak firsthand. He's a he's a Harvard superstar. Oh my goodness, Michael. He is he is like a god at Harvard. So his course justice 
uh, is, is a huge uh, sort of course that everybody takes freshman year. My biggest regret is that I did not, but everybody that I knew took this course. Um, I actually have a funny story about it, if you have a second. Sure. The what co- have I got to do? Okay, fine. So <laughs> Michael Sandel, who, with whom you just spoke, this justice course, huge course at Harvard. And my husband, Joey, who I met first day freshman year at Harvard, took this course freshman year. And I, I think perhaps in a way trying to, you know, sort of get to know me a bit more, he knew that my brother, Colbert, who was four years younger, he was 14 at the time, was into these kind of topics, justice and politics and and morality and speech and debate. My brother was a national champion. So Joey sends in the mail 14-year-old Colbert in Raleigh, North Carolina, the entire justice course book. Guys will go to any lengths. So Continue. Then, so, you know, at back <laughs> back then, 30 years ago, the, the course books were actually like printed and bound sure. for, okay, so Good the entire days. justice course books. And then he realized that Colbert really understood this stuff. Uh-oh. And come exam time, right. Joey and Colbert, the 14-year-old, age, age 14, <laughs> were discussing Michael Sandel's justice. And so Colbert was ready when he when he hit campus. So I thought it was I've, I love that story. I I circled something else in the book. It says in an unequal society, those who land on top want to believe that their success is morally justified. In a meritocratic society, this means the winners must believe they have earned their success through their own talent and hard work. Now, I was finishing the book last night. In fact, I was finishing the book at 730 last night, sitting, yes, in my rather comfortable house. And I was reading that and I was saying to myself, well, geez, my day began at 430. 4.30 a.m., it it included reading in and hosting for a radio program and then planning a television show and reading in for another show and writing something and interacting with, you know, two of our four kids and trying to provide them with guidance uh, of their work and careers. Meanwhile, my wife walked through the door at 7.30 last night from a long, long day. Yeah, she makes a very good living as well, but literally works seven days a week. And I don't want to come off sounding like like Brett Kavanaugh, who is quoted in the book here, but um, it then makes me wonder, well, am I doing something wrong? I mean, what is it that I should be doing differently than I'm doing if I'm contributing to this meritocratic situation that Dr. Sandel is saying is is at the root of such division in this country? I don't know if you remember, but, quote, asked about apparent references in his high school yearbook to drinking and sexual exploits, Brett Kavanaugh replied, I was at the top of my class academically, busted my butt in school, captain of the varsity basketball team, got in Yale College. When I got into Yale College, got into Yale Law School, that's the number one law school in the country. I had no connections there. I got there by busting my tail in college. And part of me says that to to Dr. Sandell's argument, well, where's the mistake I'm making? Should I be working less hard? But of course, I acknowledge that by virtue of the success I've had, there are benefits that are afforded to our four children that I never had, and most people's kids are never going to have. 
Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen to the Michael Smirconish program weekdays on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124 and anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest Internet with faster speeds rolling out every day and Internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.